following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Today we are continuing in our series in the book of Judges. We started the series last week with an overview, and you might, if you weren't here last week, you might want to get a copy of that message online just to orientate yourself with the book. We looked at some of the major themes in Judges and how they play out through the book. So it'll be a good grounding if you, uh, if you haven't already heard that message. Today we're going to dive into chapter 1, and the thing with Judges and a lot of Old Testament history is that the, the chunks tend to be quite large. So as we go through Judges, we'll be dealing with maybe a whole chapter at a time, sometimes even two chapters. So uh, the story of Judges picks up the story of Israel in a very specific place, uh, right after the death of Joshua. It's very clear, verse 1, after the death of Joshua is where this story starts. Joshua has led Israel into the land of Canaan in this military campaign in order that they would conquer the land and settle there. And that conquest of Canaan really has two parts to it. The first part is in the book of Joshua. And Joshua leads Israel all together into the land, and they overthrow various kingdoms and cities and kings, and they set up in the land of Canaan. And then on that basis, Joshua allocates out all the various parts of Canaan to the tribes of Israel. Then the second part of the conquest is where the story of Judges kicks in. Because the idea now is that all the different tribes move into their allocated areas in the land of Canaan, and they drive out any remaining people groups that are in that land and take full possession of their allocated territories. This was going to be more of a tribe-by-tribe thing now, as opposed to the altogether battles that Israel had fought in the book of Joshua. So the story starts really well, and Israel starts by inquiring of the Lord, In verse 1, that's a really good start. That's a positive start. They ask God, which tribe should go up first? Which tribe should go into its territory first? And the answer comes back from God, Judah. Send Judah first. Judah had this territory given to them in the southwest part of Canaan. And so they would be the first tribe to go up and drive out any last people groups remaining in that land. So the Judites are quite smart about this. And they say to their brothers, the Simeonites, why don't you guys come with us? Because if you come with us and help us fight our battles drive out the people in our land, then uh, when it's your turn to go up and claim the Simeonite territory, we'll come with you and help drive out the Canaanites in your land. So that seems good to the Simeonites, and they go with the Judites, and they drive out a whole bunch of people in Judah's territory, including this nasty character, Adonai Bezek, who is it's sort of a profile of a Canaanite king here, a nasty character who has cut off the big toes and thumbs of 70 people, 70 people before him, 70 kings. And so the Israelites, the Judites, cut off the big toes and the thumbs of Adonai Bezek as retribution for what he has done to these other kings. So that for the first half of this chapter, the story is going really well. Judah's taking all kinds of territory. They're deposing these kings and they're taking their ground. It all looks really good up to verse 18 and then it starts to get shaky. And you hit verse 19 and you have this. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Now, that might be understandable in a military sense. In a strategic sense, chariots fitted with iron are quite difficult. But there's a little verse back in the book of Joshua. Let me read this to you. Joshua 17, 18. Joshua had already said this to the Israelites. Though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. 
Joshua's already mentioned these specific chariots fitted with iron, and he said, it doesn't matter. They might have fancy chariots. It doesn't matter. God is with you. You are the people of God. God's going to go ahead of you, and you can drive them out. So when you get to Judges 1, and suddenly the Judites come against these guys, and they've got fancy chariots, and they can't overthrow them, it should raise a question. What's going on here? This is not just a military issue. This is not just about warfare. There's something else going on. There's some other reason why they are failing. And then the story shifts to the various successes and failures of all the other tribes of Israel as they go about trying to claim the various territories. Judah gets the most profile, but all the other tribes have a go. They move into their territory and they try to claim these different lands. But it's a pretty sorry story. You read the second half of chapter 1 and there's a few successes, but a whole lot of failure. Verse 21, the Benjamites couldn't drive out the Zebuzites. Verse 27, Manasseh didn't drive out the people of Beth Shan. Verse 29, Ephraim couldn't drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun couldn't drive out the Canaanites. Verse 31, Asher couldn't drive out those living in Akko or Sidon. Verse 33, Naphtali couldn't drive out those living in Beth Shemesh. On and on and on it goes. The Israelites are unable to drive out a lot of the people groups in the land. And as I read through this, I noticed something quite particular that gives you a sense of what's really going on here. The author of Judges is very strategic in the way he describes this, and he drops a few clues as to the real picture. Notice that in verse 21 and verse 29, he talks about Canaanite peoples living among Israel, living in Israelite land. The Jebusites lived among the Benjamites. And in verse 29, the Canaanites lived among the tribe of Ephraim. But then you get to verse 31 and 33, and you read of Israelites living in Canaanite land. Verse 32, the Asherites, tribe of Asher, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And verse 33, the Naphtalites too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. What's going on here? At the beginning, you have the sense of Canaanites living in Israel's territory. But by the time you get to the end of this chapter... It is Israel living in Canaanite land. The land is still defined as Canaanite land. And all that's happened is that Israel's moved into the neighborhood. All that's happened here is Israel squeezed itself in among these other nations and the land is still defined as the land of Canaan. It's Canaanite territory defined by these Canaanite people groups and now Israel is just cohabitating among its neighbors. Well then in chapter 2, An angel of the Lord appears and gives God's verdict on all of this and passes God's judgment on these successes and failures of Israel. And God starts by affirming his covenant with Israel. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. And here's the rebuke. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? So God's not rebuking Israel for their military failure. He's not rebuking Israel for their loss in battle. He's rebuking them because they disobeyed him. He's rebuking them because they have not been faithful to him. And the implication is that somehow Israel's gone and made a covenant with the people of this land. Israel's gone and attached themselves somehow to the people of this land and allied themselves with them. And in the process, they have become contaminated and their faith's been compromised. See a little bit of this happening, I think, in the story of Joseph and tribe of Joseph in verse 22. 
The tribe of Joseph goes up to the city of Bethel in order to take possession of it. And a guy comes out from the city and meets these spies from the house of Joseph. And they say to this guy from Bethel, if you show us how to get into the city, we will spare you and your family. So he does. He tells them how to get in. They take the city, they destroy the city and demolish it, but they let this guy go and they spare him and they spare his family. But look at what happens. Look at the first thing this guy does as soon as he's let go. Verse 26, he then went to the land of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. He's just come from the city Bethel, which is also called Luz. That's been demolished. Now the first thing he does is he goes and sets up another Canaanite city and calls it Luz. It's like Luz, Luz. They just can't do anything about that. That was cheesy, I know. They can't do anything about this. The guy, they destroy one city, but because they've made a hasty alliance with this guy, another Canaanite city pops right up, a monument to Canaanite culture and religion, and it's like nothing's been gained. And I think the point here is that Israel's raced into this alliance with this guy and made this hasty, foolish agreement, and it's compromising their ability to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And so God says this to them at the end of the section in chapter 2. In verse 3, I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. That's just a direct fulfillment of what God had already promised to Joshua. Just flick back a couple of chapters. Joshua chapter 23, in verse 11, here's the promise. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So really, Joshua, the book of Joshua is the story of God fulfilling his positive promises to Israel. His promises to bless them if they're faithful to him and drive out nations before them. And Judges is the story of God fulfilling his negative promises to Israel. The consequences of what's going to happen if they're unfaithful to him. If you're unfaithful to me, I'm going to stop driving out these nations. I'm not going to go ahead of you into battle. And you're going to go out there and find that you'll lose almost every single time. That's exactly what's happened. Because the Israelites have turned away from God. Because they haven't driven out these nations. And so Canaanite culture and religion is just proliferated among them and they've astray from God. Now I know that this is an ancient story. I know there's a lot of geography here that's complicated and it seems like a strange old book. But as you reflect on this stuff, can you see some of the connections to our own lives? Can you see some of the connections to our culture today? There are profound parallels between the situation that Israel found itself in and the situation we live in today. Last week we talked about the canonization of Christians and the canonization of the church. That we live within a world where there are many gods and many idols. We live in a culture where people hold all kinds of worldviews, follow all kinds of stories, bow down before all kinds of altars, and have all kinds of allegiances, often very far from God. And we are not called to drive them out. Let's be clear about that. We're not in the place of Israel being called to undertake some holy war against our culture. But we are called to live faithfully before God in the midst of a pluralistic society. Many gods, many altars, many idols. And Israel's example is both negative and positive for us in that respect. It's so easy for us to be influenced by our culture, by our world, 
and to allow our faith to be compromised and to be contaminated. It's so easy for us to be canonized. There's all kinds of ways in which this can happen, and we will work through some of those over the course of the series. You might want to talk about some of these in your life group. Let me just pick up on one example today, one application. It's incredibly easy, I think, for us as Christians to be influenced by the superficial nature of our culture. The word superficial, I would say, is is a good adjective to describe contemporary Western culture. We tend to be drawn to surface-level things. We tend to be interested in trivial matters. We we, we tend to be driven by shallow concerns. Our culture is often just skin-deep, and we live in shallow waters as a society. In my role as a pastor, one of the things I do is take a lot of weddings, quite a few weddings, both Christian and non-Christian weddings. And I've noticed a definite trend in the past, I don't know, five, six, seven years. In wedding ceremonies, often these days the vows are becoming really jokesy. I don't know whether you notice this at weddings, but the vows are becoming quite trivial. And couples, I mean, it's a good, I'm all for a good laugh at weddings, don't get me wrong, but now, you know, couples are making jokes in their vows about things they're going to do for each other and how they're going to hang out the washing and they're going to let the, this guy go surfing and how much housework they're going to do. It's been incorporated into wedding vows. Again, I'm all for a great laugh at weddings, and there's definitely a place for humor, but I don't think it's in the vows that husband and wife are making to one another. I went to a wonderful wedding yesterday, Hamish and Amanda Harper, and it was, there was depth to it. Brian McStay took the service, and there was a solemn spirit of seriousness as they committed their lives to one another. I think that's how it should be. We've trivialized wedding vows. I know couples are still committing themselves, and perhaps underneath there's there's still a great seriousness to it, but the vows themselves have become so jokesy and casual. seems to me to be symbolic of a superficial kind of culture where we prioritize this kind of shallow stuff, jokesy stuff, over real substance and real depth. You see this kind of superficiality, don't you, in our culture all over the place. I was watching Campbell Live the other night, and there was a story on about the most interesting roundabout in New Zealand. This is prime time current affairs, the hard-hitting news stories. We've got a story about the most interesting little roundabout in New Zealand. They dispatched three separate reporters to talk about them, to go and find the most interesting roundabout that they could. Now, I know there's more serious stuff on Campbell Live sometimes than that, but you just get the sense, are we being dumbed down? The information that's coming to us, the current affairs, are we being dumbed down? We are living in a culture that prioritizes the superficial, and it affects us. And the tragedy is it affects us as Christians. We allow often the superficiality of our culture to affect our faith, to affect our relationship with God, and to affect our practice of the Christian life. We tend to, as Christians, be drawn to the buzz, don't we? I don't know what it is about us evangelicals. We tend to be quite fad-driven, don't we? Kind of drawn to the latest bestseller, the latest conference, latest speaker. We want to be where the buzz is, the latest kind of how-to thing for the Christian life, the latest cool thing, the latest cool conference or cool church or cool camp or cool experience. We want to know that we're kind of in with it, you know, where the cool Christians are. We're drawn to these experiential things, you know, these surface-level kind of things. This just seems to define often the spirit of evangelicalism in the contemporary context. And where's the fruit of this? These things can be okay, but are they developing depth in our relationship with God over the long haul? Are they making us people of substance and people of real depth in relationship with God and others? I was talking to a friend a couple of weeks ago about how easy it is in groups like life groups to have 
conversations where we give pat answers. I'm not saying you do this in your life groups. I just know for me it's easy to do. You sit around, and we, we, we've somehow developed a way of talking, I think, as Christians, where we can talk about the Christian life in a way that's very disconnected from our own experience. And we sort of talk about the Christian life like it's this thing here. We talk about God like it's this thing here. And we can discuss it, and we can talk around it, and what God's like, and what the Christian life's like, and we can give the right answers. But so often it doesn't really seem to intersect with the real struggles and the real battles and the real grittiness and realness and messiness of our own lives. We struggle, I think, to connect our own selves to our rhetoric about Christian living. And so we live these split lives. We've developed a way of talking great Christianese but we're not so great at talking about ourselves, are we? And how we're really doing. It's so easy for it to drift to the surface, for it to drift into the realm of the superficial. In our relationship with God, in our practices around Scripture, in our participation in church, in our expression of the Christian life. And I would say that Israel's example in chapter 2 here is a really good one for us in their response to this. In verse 4, when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim, and there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. See, it's actually one of the most positive notes in the whole book of Judges, I think. Even though it's a really sad moment, Israel gets it. They understand that they have been influenced by the cultures around them, and they do something to put it right. Even though it's a moment of weeping, it is one of the high points in the book of Israel's faith. Sadly, it doesn't last that long, but here they are honestly confessing this to God and realigning themselves with his plans and his purposes. This is the example for us. As Christians, we need to be willing to ask God to reveal to us ways in which we've been influenced by the superficiality of our culture and bow down at that altar and before that idol may not even be apparent to us. But this is the first step, is just honestly having a conversation with God about this. In what ways has the superficiality of our culture rubbed off on you and me? Talk to God about that. Ask Him to search your heart about that. And look, there is no guilt. There is no condemnation around this. This is not about sending us on a guilt trip. God is endlessly merciful, boundlessly gracious. And as soon as we confess this thing, His grace rushes again into our life. He forgives us. He frees us. He doesn't want to trap us in guilt, but he asks us to name these things honestly so that he can build back into us an undivided heart, a heart that desires him above all else and a heart that wants to follow him above all else. And God's calling to us in our culture is that we would be people, that we would be Christians of depth and substance in a superficial age and that we would begin that process by pursuing greater depth and our personal relationships with God. That's where it's going to start, isn't it? It's by developing depth in our own and in our own love, our own experience of God's presence and grace. And can I give you in that regard just one simple practice to develop in your life? If you genuinely desire to have greater depth in relationship with God, and if you're sick of having a superficial surface-level relationship with Him, it's the practice of regular solitude with God. We were talking about this as a staff team this week because we've been struggling with it too. Finding that time to be still in God's presence. Life is frantic. You're setting such a heavy pace. And we'd been struggling with this. So we went around the table and just talked about the different practices that we have and the ways that we try to center ourselves 
in God's presence and spend some intentional time developing depth in relationship with Him. And what was so interesting about that discussion is that everyone's experience looked different. There was one person who spends five minutes a day just still and silent in God's presence, not saying a word, silence, just centering herself around God's presence, being still. Someone else has 30 minutes that they spend in the morning before most of her kids get up, and there's practices built into that around Scripture and prayer, and she has this routine because she knows if she doesn't do it at this set time, it's not going to happen. Somebody else has snatches of time in their car. They take the Bible with them and they grab the time because they're out traveling a bit. And when, when they can, they, they take the Bible and they have some time with God and it's just blocks during the day. Someone else has a regular time, but it's not set. It's just when he's able to do that and he manages to make it work, finds time for it and then has other ways of connecting to God during the day. Every person's story is different. We kind of had the old classic quiet time model in our head, which tends to be very formulaic, doesn't it? Very kind of one way of connecting to God. But there are a myriad of ways because we are diverse people and God is a diverse God and we relate to Him and we respond to Him in different ways. The common denominator is time spent intentionally focused on the presence of God. This is what is going to build depth into your life. This is what is going to shape you as a person of substance and work against the superficiality of the culture around us. To have that centered time in the presence and the grace of God. Within that context, build in practices of Scripture. There's a range of ways of doing that. Reading the Bible, studying the Bible, memorizing, meditating, reflecting, contemplating. Mix it up, develop variety, but build in God's Word because it's one of the primary ways that God speaks to us and meets with us in the pages of Scripture. Within those times of solitude, build in practices of prayer. And that doesn't always have to be words. I can sometimes go through an entire time of solitude with God and I haven't said anything to Him verbally at all. Prayer, I love the way one of our elders, Gary Pike, talks about prayer as it's the leaning of our heart towards God. It's the turning of the heart towards God. Maybe words may not be words, but it's the posture of our heart, centering ourselves in God's presence, being still. Sometimes there'll be words, sometimes it'll be verbal, sometimes it'll be about us, sometimes about other people. But the point is that we are conscious, we bring ourselves to conscious awareness of the presence of God. And if you can commit to that as a regular practice, if you believe that it can develop depth in your life. It will shape you and it will form you in a different way to the world because the reality is we are being shaped every day. We are being formed every day by all kinds of practices, just the rhythms and the routines of our life. They are shaping us. They are forming us and they are influencing us. And if we are not moving against those influences in some way by developing counter practices that shape us around the kingdom of God, Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God, what it looks like, and the glorious presence of God in our lives, we will be led further and further from that faithful allegiance and anchorage in relationship with God. If you don't have that practice established in your life, I want to encourage you to start. Don't suddenly go, if you're not doing anything, don't suddenly go for like two hours a day. Don't, don't go from, you know, zero to 100 Ks in two seconds. Just steady on and take a step. Take a step. Start with a few minutes. Find a habit. Get into a rhythm with it and build from there. And if these times are shaky for you, if they're sporadic, if they've become a bit empty and dry, look at mixing them up in the way that you use Scripture, in the way that you use prayer, perhaps look at a spiritual retreat. See if you can anchor yourself again in this rhythm and ground yourself in the presence of God. You will find that over the course of your life, it develops depth. The people that I can look at, who I would say are Christians of real depth and real substance, that I admire their faith in their life, have this as a rhythm and a practice that they've pursued for a long, long time. 
please don't hear me advocating legalism. Please don't hear me advocating works and trying to earn your way to God and trying to earn your salvation. This is not what it's about. This is a gracious response to God. And it's our conviction that we want to be shaped into his image as faithful Christians because of what Jesus has done for us. It's going to make us people of greater depth and more serious disciples of Christ. Anna reminded me last night of a time when we were teenagers and we'd been hanging out with a couple of Christian friends. We couldn't even remember what we'd been talking about that night, but we'd obviously been talking about some things that were difficult for us and challenges that we were facing in our lives. And we were walking with them at the end of the evening, just walking down the driveway towards our car. And one of these friends that we'd been spending time with stopped and said, hey, should we just pray about this? And it was, you know, it was one of those weird moments because people don't say that, do they? It's like, this isn't a prayer meeting. We're on a driveway. We're just about to get into our car. Slightly awkward. But we did, and we stopped, and we prayed, and it was such a special moment. It was a moment of depth. It wasn't expected, and he went out on a limb even saying that and putting that out there in the conversation. But man, that was a moment so different to a lot of moments that we experience in our life. It was a moment of depth and a moment that stood for me in distinction from a culture of superficiality. In that moment, we weren't just talking about stuff, not even just talking about our lives. We were bringing that to God and involving Him in the conversation, and it just took us to another level of depth. As we spend time in solitude with God, it spills over into our relationships with others as well. So let's learn from Israel's example, positive and negative. Let's learn from the negative example of the way that their faith was compromised. And let's be honest enough to ask God to really search our hearts, identify ways that we may have become superficial in our faith and in our life. And let's learn from Israel's positive example when they came honestly before God with weeping and with sacrifice and recommitted themselves to him. It's a wonderful model for us to follow, and that's perhaps a step that you may need to take this morning, to come honestly before God, to confess, to repent, to turn away from that superficial faith and turn towards God and allow him to renew a heart of depth in your life. Psalm 51 says, The sacrifice that God desires is a contrite heart and a broken spirit God will never despise. That's the posture that God asks us to come to him with. And that's the beginning of a life of depth and a culture of superficiality. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, just now in the stillness, we ask that you would bring to our minds the ways in which we've been led astray by our culture. We know that there's such subtle things, God, that eat away at our lives, compromise our faith. Father, as we, as we center our thoughts and minds on you, as we take communion now, would you use this time to renew our hearts, to renew and refresh our faith, to create in us a clean heart, O oh God, and to renew a right spirit within us that is ready to do your will, an undivided heart to follow you. That's what we long for. Make us people of depth, anchored in relationship with you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. 
Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.